All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. We're in Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11 this morning, and we are finally back. Uh, we're back in the Gospel of Mark. I think I started this like midway through 2019. I do believe it was. And we've taken a lot of breaks. Uh, it's been four months uh, since I decided to take a break from Mark's Gospel and preach on some topical things. Uh, in light of the big changes that have happened in our congregation with getting a new building and wanting to kind of refocus and all that. Um, I think it was four months well spent on subjects that we needed to hear uh, from the Word of God about. Uh, but now we're back to the usual stuff. Uh, preaching verse by verse through a book of the Bible. This is where I, I feel like I'm at home. Uh, and we come now to Mark 11, verses 1 through 11, and we'll be considering what is often called the triumphal entry. And the text before us is a very famous text. Uh, if you've been a Christian for very long, you know that this is the Palm Sunday text, right, for congregations who observe that. Um, Christ is entering Jerusalem in our passage. Um, he's making his entrance into the royal city on a Sunday. And this is the beginning of what we often call Passion Week. Right? This is the beginning of the week that, that ends with the death of Christ uh, on, on Good Friday. Uh, and actually, Mark devotes, I believe it's one-third of his entire book to this. Um, some people have said that Mark's book is, or rather the Gospel of Mark, is really a passion narrative with a very long introduction because he spends so much time on this final week of Jesus' life. Um, so again, it's the beginning of the last week of the life of Christ, that is, his life prior to his resurrection. Um, now, I, I confess to you all to my shame that until this past week, I had never really, in the last 10 years as a Christian, ever really contemplated the significance of this event. I never had. I've never preached on it, so I've never like read a whole lot about it. I've never sat down and really meditated upon um, the importance of the triumphal entry of Christ. And I've never really heard very many sermons on it, which may mean that I was raised in uh, odd, odd churches. I don't, I don't know. Um, but there, there are some seemingly strange things going on here. Right? There is a colt of a donkey, palm branches, the word Hosanna, crowds praising Jesus. There's a great entry into the city. What is this all about? Right? I've always thought it was, it was kind of a strange narrative. Uh, Jesus goes into the city. There's a lot of stuff that happens, and let's move on to the next portion of Scripture. Right? That's kind of how I've read it in the past. Uh, but mark it down. This passage is incredibly important. It's one of the very, very few things recorded in all four Gospels. There's not very many things. Not even the birth of Christ is recorded in all four Gospels. Right? So this is incredibly important. And that should grab our attention that it's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, again, all of Scripture is important, but when all four Gospels record the same event, that should make us sit up a little straighter uh, and pay a little bit closer attention to what we read. So again, th this event is really important for us to understand who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. Simply put, this passage, the entry of our Lord Jesus Christ into Jerusalem, is an open declaration of who Jesus is from Jesus himself. And that's why this is so significant. I'm telling you on the front end, Jesus is telling us who he is. This event screams that Jesus is the Messiah that he is the promised king, that he is the promised son of David who has come to establish the kingdom of God, bless and save the people of God, and begin his reign. But, as we'll see, 
while the crowds superficially received Jesus and superficially acknowledged his claims, nobody there really understood what kind of king that Jesus is and what kind of salvation that he came to bring to the world. Not even the twelve. Not until after his resurrection. No one really fully understood what kind of a king Jesus is and what he came to do. So what I want to show you today from this text is that Jesus is the king. That he is the unique king. That he is the king we are to receive. And that he is the king that we most desperately need. Now with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word that reveals you more deeply than anything else. Thank you for giving us a sure word, a word that we can rely on, a word that will never lead us astray, a word that will never fail us because it comes from your holy mouth. And so we ask this morning that you would help us to understand, receive, believe, and apply your word. By your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds to savingly understand the things of God. Help us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest your word. Have mercy on us. Give us a glimpse of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to see him clearly. Glorify yourself in the revealing of your Son to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Right, now, some context here, especially because it's been a while since we, we've been in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus and his disciples have been heading to Jerusalem since chapter 8. I think it may have been verses 27 or 37, but chapter 8, nonetheless, they've been heading to Jerusalem. They have been on the way for quite a while now, and they're heading uh, to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Uh, but ultimately, as I said in the introduction, they're headed to Jerusalem so our Lord Jesus can be betrayed, arrested, put on a cross, and raised from the dead to save sinners according to the plan and will of God, as he's prophesied three times now as they're on their way to Jerusalem. Everything has been pointing to this week. 
This is the culmination of Jesus's entire earthly ministry. Everything hits its high point here, and Jesus is going to start this week off with a bang. But in the opening verses of our text, we we see that Jesus and his disciples are about two miles out uh, from the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus has them stop at a village outside of the city. He has something important that he wants done. What he's doing is he's preparing to make his grand entrance into the royal city. And and as they stop, Jesus turns to two of his disciples and says, I'll read verse 2 and 3 again. He says, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Now, Matthew's parallel account in Matthew chapter 21, I believe it is, uh, gives some more information to us. And in Matthew's account, we see that Jesus tells the, the two disciples to go get a colt of a donkey. That is, a young donkey, a year old or less. Jesus tells his disciples to simply go and get it, and if anyone stops them, tell them that the Lord needs it. And I'm not going to get into that today, but this is about the only time that I'm aware of in Mark's gospel that Jesus calls himself the Lord. That's supposed to make our ears prick up a little bit. And what's implied in Jesus' words here, I think, is that once they hear, once these people who actually own this colt, once they hear that the Lord needs it, they're going to let the donkey go without another word. And then in verses 4 through 6, we read that the two disciples went and did as Jesus commanded, and everything shook out exactly the way that our Lord said that it would. Now that's six verses worth of information. Six verses. Under divine inspiration, right? Mark didn't do this on his own. Under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, Mark really took his time recording the procuring of a donkey. Six verses are a lot of verses for Mark. Are they not, right? He, he's, he's known for being the briefest uh, gospel writer, right? He, he, he condenses things all the time, but he spends six verses on them getting a donkey. You think this would be a verse, maybe two verses. And that makes us think, why did he think it was so important to highlight this donkey and everything else? And I think that Mark, really God the Holy Spirit inspiring Mark, intends us to see a a few things here. Uh, Remember, God doesn't waste ink, right? Nothing in the Bible is superfluous. Everything's written for a reason. And I think that there are quite a few things that we can see in these six verses. And I had them in my sermon, but I I took them out because it was going to make it a, a bit too long, a bit longer than I wanted it to be. But For our time this morning then, instead of giving you four things from these first six verses, I really want to focus in on one thing in particular, and that is the donkey. Mark spends six verses talking about how Jesus had two disciples go get a donkey. And that makes us ask, why does Jesus care so much about getting this colt? Why does he care? Why doesn't, get this, why doesn't he just walk into Jerusalem? This isn't the first time he's been to Jerusalem. It's the first time in Mark's gospel, I believe. But looking at the other gospels, he's been there more than once, right? He's walked everywhere else in his ministry, right? We we have no record of him ever riding an animal prior to this account. So why does he want to ride a donkey? Why does he have them stop here two miles out from the city? Why is Jesus doing all of this? This seems a little strange, and it seems a little bit unnecessary, I submit to you that our Lord Jesus is making a point here. He's making a point. 
Everything Jesus did was for a good reason. Everything he did and said that is recorded for us has been recorded for our instruction and our edification. So what point is being made? Our Lord Jesus is intentionally, self-consciously, fulfilling prophecy in our text. He is aware of what the Old Testament teaches about the Messiah. And the Old Testament mentions that the Messiah rides on a colt. In telling the disciples to go and get him a donkey that has never been sat on, Jesus is intentionally fulfilling prophecy about the Messiah. And in doing so, he is making a public, a very public statement about who he is. And it's plain for everybody to see if they are paying just an ounce of attention to Jesus. And here's the prophecy in the Old Testament. In the book of Zechariah, it's toward the end of the Old Testament. It's one of the minor prophets. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, we read this. Matthew actually points us in this direction in his account. He quotes from this. Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. Centuries before the birth of Jesus Christ, it was prophesied that the king of Israel, the Messiah, the long-awaited king, would one day come into his city. He would come into Jerusalem. And when he comes, he will come riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And now our Lord Jesus, I love this, he looks at his two disciples a couple of miles out from Jerusalem and he says, go and get me a donkey. Go. Go get me a young colt that no one has ever sat on. No one ever having sat on an animal. If you read Numbers and Deuteronomy, it's used for something sacred. Animals that have never been used for anything else are used for something sacred. And also there's a regal element to this. No one's allowed to ride the king's animals but the king. Go get me an animal. Go get me a donkey that no one has ever sat on and bring it here. We're going to Jerusalem and I'm riding it. He's making a point. This, makes me, this, got, this gets me very excited because Jesus, who is usually so secretive about his identity, is now saying, the gloves are off. I want everyone to know. He's publicly declaring who he is. The time has come. It's now time for everyone to recognize just exactly who he is. He's not hiding it anymore. The time of his death is near. The time of his work of redemption is near. The time for the Messiah to do his salvific work has come. And so now it is time for the nation of Israel to see her king and fall before him. For the first time, our Lord wants people to see publicly who he is. And so we need to see all that he intended us to see. The king is coming to the city. And he comes riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And he comes bringing salvation to his people. By riding this donkey into Jerusalem, our Lord, as I've said already, he's declaring his kingship. And I I want to focus in on some of the depths of that declaration, four things in particular. Namely, Jesus is showing us that he is the unique king. That there is no king like him. There never has been a king like him, and there never will be another king like him. First, as I've already said, Jesus is declaring by riding this donkey into Jerusalem, he's saying that he is none other than the Messiah. 
He is the one who the world has been waiting for. The one who will establish the kingdom of God. Jesus has come to fulfill the promise that God made to Abraham. God told Abraham that through him, through one of Abraham's descendants, through the offspring of Abraham, and as Paul tells us, this offspring is not plural, but referring to one who is Christ. Through the offspring of Abraham, God's going to bless the world. Through the offspring of Abraham, salvation would come to the peoples of the world. The effects of sin would be reversed. Sinners would be brought back to God. And Christ, the true descendant of Abraham, the true Israelite, has come. Jesus has come to fulfill the promise that God made to Judah through Jacob in Genesis chapter 49. Some of you guys doing your Bible reading plans, maybe you've made it this far. Genesis 49.10, Jacob prophesies to Judah and says, The scepter... That's what a king has. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. A king would come from Judah. Judah is a descendant of Abraham. And from his tribe, from the tribe of Judah, would come a great king. And this king is called Shiloh. So at least that's, how the, that's, the, that's the Hebrew word there. The King James actually keeps it in there. The king is called Shiloh, and Shiloh means one who brings peace. One who brings peace. The king who will bring peace to the world, to the nations, will come. And Christ, Shiloh, the lion of the tribe of Judah, has come into his city. Jesus has come to fulfill the promise that God made to David. God told David that he would have a descendant who would be king over an eternal kingdom whose rule would never end. And the son of David has come. Jesus has come to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament prophets about one who would come to save and rule. A few here, Ezekiel 34 speaks of David, which means David's already dead at this point. It means a descendant of David. David will come to shepherd God's people and lead them in peace. Isaiah 9 and 11 speak of a king who will come from David's line, a shoot from the stump of Jesse who will bring peace to the world and no one will harm anyone in all his holy mountain and he will rule in justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Isaiah 53 speaks of the suffering servant of the Lord, the Messiah, who will come and suffer punishment and be crushed by God in order to save God's people from their sins. He has come to fulfill all these and more. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one, the great king who will bless the nations, reconcile sinners to God, and reign forever. And he comes riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And as the long-awaited king, second, Jesus comes to bring salvation. Let me read the prophecy of Zechariah 9 again, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteousness, with righteousness and having salvation. Having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he, who's he? The king, he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Don't worry, I'm not going to get into postmillennialism today, but it's there. 
Zechariah says that he comes with salvation. Salvation. And he comes to bring, rather to speak peace to the nations. The nations, to the Gentiles, to the world. The king has come to save and establish his reign from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. This is a worldwide salvation that the king comes to bring. Now, now this salvation had been warped in the minds of many Jews in Jesus' day. By the time that Jesus came, most of the Jews expected the Messiah to be a political warrior king with a physical earthly kingdom. And they believed that when he came, he would come and destroy the Roman Empire with the sword and, and, and bring back Israeli independence and establish them as a nation. But that's not the kind of salvation that the king came to bring. Oh, don't, don't get me wrong. Having salvation is he. But not salvation from Rome. He came to bring spiritual salvation. Our Lord Jesus came to bring true salvation. He came to save sinners from sin. He came to save sinners from death. He came to save sinners from the wrath of God. Our Lord came into the world to reconcile sinners back to the God we've offended. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, says the Apostle Paul. That's why he came. The king came in order to bring us back to God. The king came to bring eternal life to all who would believe on him. And he came to do so by giving his life as a ransom for many, as he said himself earlier in the Gospel of Mark. He came into this world to die on a cross and bear the awful wrath of God in place of all who would believe. He came to take our sins upon himself. And to take our sins to the cross, where he would pour out his own blood in our room instead. He came to take the sins away from his people and purify them, sprinkling them with his blood and making them clean by making atonement for them. He came to make peace with God for sinners who deserve health because of their sin. And he did so by suffering the very wrath of the God that they've offended in their place at the cross. The king did this. The king did this. The king did this in order that amnesty might be granted to rebel sinners. The king did this in order to purify sinners and make them fit to become citizens of his own kingdom. They were not citizens by right of birth, but because the king has made them able to join his kingdom. The king the king offered his life as a substitutionary sacrifice so that rebel sinners could enter the kingdom of God through faith in him. And he did this for all who will believe. All are welcome to join his kingdom if they will only come to the king in faith, believing that he died for them, that he paid for their sins in their place and reconciled them to God by his death. This is how the king will speak peace to the nations by reconciling sinners from all nations to the God that we've sinned against. He brings eternal salvation and eternal redemption, eternal life to all who will believe. Truly, Zechariah was telling the truth, was he not? Having salvation is he. The one who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey is the savior of the world. He is the savior king. We also see, thirdly, that he is the humble king. Zechariah explicitly says in Zechariah 9.9 9, that the king is humble 
and mounted on a donkey. A humble king. What a concept. Sincerely, what a concept. A humble king. His words are antonyms. Humble king. Right? That doesn't really exist in our world. Not in the kingdoms of men. Not really. Not really, anyway. But our king is not like the kings of this world. Notice that contrary to what other kings in the world do, or rather did in that era, our king does not come riding on a war horse. He doesn't. He doesn't come with royal chariots. He doesn't enter the royal city with great fanfare and politicians lined up to greet him and trumpets blaring and all the rest. No, none of that. He comes in riding a humble beast. He comes into his city riding on a donkey. He doesn't even have a proper saddle to put on the animal. He doesn't. Verse 7 tells us they put their cloaks on the donkey for him to sit on. The king doesn't even have a saddle. And his entourage is a group of ordinary men and unlettered men. Ordinary people, pilgrims on their way to worship God at Passover. Not great rulers and generals. He's not like other kings. He is the humble king. I mean, consider for a moment his entrance into the world. In order to come here, he had to leave heaven. He had to leave heaven. He emptied himself of all of his divine prerogatives. He left the joys of heaven behind and took on flesh. He left utter perfection to come to us. He left the realm where day and night the angels fly about his throne singing, Holy, holy, holy. And he came here. He entered into our miserable, sin-sick world, and he became one of us. Oh, the distance between God and man is infinite, and he becomes one of us. In every way that we are, subject to human infirmities, subject to all the weaknesses of mankind except without sin. And he did so in order that he might do good for us and save us. As Paul tells us in Philippians 2.7, he emptied himself. He humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He's the humble king. And his life was one of suffering and humility. The king was born in what is essentially a stable, placed in a feeding trough. He should have been born in a palace. He's a king. He should have been born in a palace. He should have been placed in a crib with silk sheets and servants attending his every infant need. But no, he was brought into this world through the birth of a virgin whom no one believed in the night with no one around on earth to care except for his mother and father. The king was a low-born king. He is the humble king. And throughout his life on earth, he devoted himself to loving and serving. What king serves Our king is a servant king. His whole life was about helping others. He taught men and led them to God in his teaching. He performed miracles and filled bellies in order to meet physical needs and point people to trust in him for their eternal salvation. He's selfless. He's selfless. Everything he did was not for himself, but rather for the good of others. And still even now interceding for us, everything he still does is for the good of others. He's the humble king. And ultimately, as I've said already, he shows the greatest level of humility by giving his life upon a cross in order to save his enemies. Who who does that? 
I was talking to Stephen about this on Wednesday after a small group was over. Who does this? I'm serious. What king does, who does this in general? But what king does this? What king dies for rebels? What king dies for those who have defied his authority? The kings of this world have rebels and seditionists executed for their attempts to overthrow the government of the king. And rightly so. But our king humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, in order to merit forgiveness for those who have rebelled against him. Our king lived, died, and was raised from the dead so that those who were his enemies can become his friends and join him in his glorious kingdom. This greatest king, one who did not have to do anything for anyone, humbled himself in order to do us good. He humbled himself to save sinners. He gave his life for ours so that we could have life in him. Truly, he is the humble king. And fourth, and the most amazing thing here, is that this humble king is the divine king. Look at verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went where? Into the temple. Brothers and sisters, when a, when a worldly king comes into his city, after he's made his entrance, where does he go? I'll tell you where he goes. He goes to his palace. He goes to his dwelling place. Where does our Lord go? He goes to the temple. First place he goes after he comes in, he goes to the temple. He goes to the place where God dwells. He goes to his house. Jesus is the divine son of God. He's the second person of the Holy Trinity, God incarnate, God in the flesh. And so naturally when he enters into his city, he goes to the dwelling place of God under the old covenant. He goes to his house, his palace, his dwelling place. He is the Lord. He is Yahweh. He is God, the creator, the divine Lord. So this king is not just a great king. He is that. But he's not just a great king. He's not just the Messiah who has come to bring the kingdom of God. He's not just the Savior who's come to deal with our sins and reconcile us to God. He's not just the humble king who will give his life as a ransom for our sins. But he is God himself. He's God. He's the one who made us. The one who sustains us. The one who has guided and directed our lives. The eternal God. He is the one worthy of our worship then. Not just us bowing our knee and saying hail to the king, but bowing in our hearts and saying, this one, this one is God. This one is worthy of my praise. This one is devoting, or rather is worth me devoting all that I am, my entire life to him and his cause and his will because this king is the king of all kings. He is God, the king of all the earth. Jesus is God. Brothers and sisters, settle the matter in your heart right now. There is no king like our king. There is no king like our king. He is the unique king. In all of history, there's never been one like him. In future history, there will never be one like him again. He stands above them all, high above them all. There is no king but Christ in the most ultimate sense. There is no king but Christ who can save you from your sins. 
There is no king but Christ who can bring peace to the nations. Let me say that again. May God help us to see this. There is no king but Christ who can bring peace to the nations. There is no king but Christ who will rule over all the world from the river to the ends of the earth. There is no king but Christ who loves his subjects with a sacrificial, self-giving love. There is no king but Christ who is humble like him. There is no king but Christ who rules over the cosmos as God incarnate. There is no king like our king. Remember that forever. You will be praising him for this forever. There is no king like our king. And he is the king to whom we owe our all. But now we turn to consider the reception of the king. In verses 7 through 10, I'll just read them. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This was a wild and joyous atmosphere that day. From what John tells us in his account, I believe it's John chapter 12, John tells us that there was actually a huge crowd that was already in the city that heard Jesus was coming, and they went out of the city and met Jesus on the way and then escorted him back into the city. Just real quick, if you didn't know it, that's what you did for a king back then. The king's coming, people tell you, you go out to meet him and escort him back into his city. And they were full of joy and reverent, reverence and praise. They were full of gladness on this day. They showed deference to Jesus. They cast their cloaks down on the ground. They even showed a type of faith in him. Now, to be sure, this crowd was ignorant hear me, they were ignorant of the greatness and depth uh, of what they were doing and what they were saying. They were. They did not understand what kind of a king that Jesus is, nor did they understand what kind of salvation that he came to bring. But nevertheless, similar to Caiaphas the high priest, despite their ignorance, they actually give us a great example of how we are to receive the king. You remember Caiaphas, I think he said, I'm paraphrasing, why should the whole nation die whenever one man can die for the nation? And the wicked high priest, in his unbelief, uttered a true prophecy. Right? And, and amen. What? Like one man dies for the nation. Amen. In a similar way, their ignorant example is nevertheless a good example for us. So we see here now how to receive the king. First, they received him with joy. They were glad that he was near to them. They were glad that he has come. They, they believed he was the Messiah. They mentioned the coming kingdom of our father David comes with him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're saying Jesus comes in the name of the Lord to bring the kingdom. They believed he was the Messiah. They believed he was the one who had come to give liberty and peace to them. Hear me. They did not receive him with begrudging hearts. They didn't receive him into the kingdom or rather into the city with a twisted arm. Far from it. They ran out to meet him. They ran to him in joy. They were shouting his praises. Again, they believed in a sense that he was the son of David who had come in to bring the reign of God's kingdom. They were glad to have him. And that tells us something this quickly. If we are to receive Christ rightly, 
we are to do so with gladness and joy. Gladly receiving him. Seeing him and hearing of him and running to him. Happy to know him. Happy that he has come. Happy to be near him. Happy to be under his rule. Not begrudgingly. Not coerced. You cannot be coerced into receiving the king ultimately. But with all godly joy that the king has come and has been pleased to visit us. That's how we receive him. Believing that he is the Messiah who has come into the world to give us peace. We receive Christ with joy. And notice secondly that they received him as a true king. This is really cool for me studying this. The text said that they spread their cloaks on the road before him so that he rode on their cloaks instead of the ground. Right? Now, this is something you would do for a king. You don't do this for ordinary people. We see an example of this. I won't read it to you, but you can write it down and check it out for yourself. 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13. The people of Israel threw their garments on the ground. Why? For the freshly anointed king of Israel, Jehu, to walk on. And they hailed him as king. This is the royal treatment. right? This is the ancient equivalent of rolling out the red carpet. They're throwing their cloaks on the ground. And there was a good bit of symbolism involved in doing this. I think we can, we can just, if we think about it for a moment, there, there's a good bit here. Uh, those throwing their cloaks on the road, they were in a sense elevating the king, were they not? The, the king is not walking on the dirt with everyone else. He's above the dirt. And so he is above everyone around him. Having the king walk on your clothing is a declaration that he is above you. That he is not your equal, rather he is your sovereign. He is elevated. You are esteeming him higher than yourself. More than that, to have the king walk on your clothing is a sign of submission. You're saying that the king's feet are worth more than your clothing. That, that the king is so glorious, and granted I know Jesus is riding on a donkey here, but bear with me. You're saying that the king is so glorious and has such authority over you that it is better for your clothing to get dirty. By the way, you don't have much clothes. You're, you're, you're a poor first century Palestinian. It, it, Jesus, or rather, the king is so glorious and has such authority over you that it's better for your clothes to get dirty than for the king's shoes or animal to get dirty. You're saying that the, the, all, you, all that you have, all that you own, all that you are is actually at the king's disposal. The king can do with you and your belongings. He can do whatever he wants with it. Your life belongs to the king. You're saying symbolically that you are under the feet of the king and you've placed yourself there willingly. It's submission. My dear friends, this is how we receive King Jesus. We elevate him in our hearts. We recognize that we are not his equals, but rather that he is king and God over us. We declare in our hearts that he is our sovereign. We submit to him in our hearts. We own the truth that he is glorious and worth more than we are. We submit all that we are to him. We pledge our fealty to him. We say to him, my life is yours. Do with me what you will. You are the king. Not only the king, but you are my king. You are over me. Command it and I will attempt to do it. If we are truly to receive Christ, we are to throw the cloak of our life down at his feet, as it were. And we are to say, trample upon me, Lord. Do with me what you will. My life belongs to you. I am no longer my own, but I belong to you, body and soul. 
and we adopt the heart posture that declares that Jesus is the true king of our lives and we're glad to be trampled upon him or trampled upon by him rather. We're glad to have him over our lives. Why? Because we've come to know the true king. We submit to him and we do so gladly. Recognizing his supremacy, this is how we receive him. And third, we receive him by faith. Now, this has already been implied already, right? Some of you are thinking, well, of course, you have to believe he is the king. But we receive him with faith. And I want to make this explicit to you. The, the crowds cried out to Jesus, Hosanna. What does that mean? It's very powerful. It means save now. Save now. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the crowds were shouting at him, save us. Save us. Now, again, I'll get into this more here in a second, but, but I want to be clear that this crowd did not have many true believers. They didn't understand what kind of salvation Jesus came to give, but nevertheless, their cry to Jesus was right, and it had a kind of faith to it. They believed Jesus could save them, right? They believed he could. I mean, granted, they wanted salvation from Roman oppression, but nevertheless, they believed that he could do it, and so they cried out to him. And really, this is how we make a request of anyone, isn't it? With faith. Not faith as, if you, as, as you have it with God, but we believe that someone can help us, and so we ask them to do it. Right? We ask them to help us. And an example, you don't call your friend who is wheelchair-bound to come and help you move a piano. You call OJ. <laughs> Everyone in our church has used the Orlando Curry moving service. Right? You call your strong, able-bodied friend to come and help you move the piano. Why? Because you believe that your able-bodied friend is actually able to help you. And so you ask. You believe he can, and you believe that he might. And so you ask. These crowds believed that Jesus could save them from Rome. They had heard of his miracles. They had just, uh, John tells us in, in, in John 11 and 12, Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead, and everyone had heard about it. And the Pharisees actually wanted to kill Lazarus. Again. They wanted him to die again. Why? Because people were hearing about what Jesus could do. And they believed that he would be able to set them free from Rome. So they cried out, save us. Friends, if we are to receive Christ, we must do so with faith. We must come to him and cry out, Hosanna. We must come to him and cry out, save me. We come to him believing that he can and that he will save our souls. We come embracing him in faith and pleading with him to save us. Hear me, if you're to receive Christ, you come to him and say, I can't save myself. I can't save myself from sin. I'm a slave to it. I live every day under the white hot wrath of God because of my sin, and I can't right a single wrong that I've done. I can't merit the forgiveness of my sins with God. I can't save my own soul. Jesus, you must do it. Hosanna to the son of David. Save me. You're my only hope. Save me. We receive him with faith if we are to receive him at all. We receive him believing that his life, death, and resurrection are enough to save us from our sins. Believing that he's the Messiah who's come to save us. Believing that he himself is the God who saves. Believing that he is the tender and loving king who has come to redeem us. We believe. 
and we cry out for salvation, and the king will give it. Oh, please count on that. When we ask someone to help us with something on earth, we, we, they might, but we're not sure. But this king will. The king says, listen to the words of the king. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. And elsewhere, he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The king will do it. Cry out, Hosanna, save me, and he will do it. But as I've already said, sadly, the crowds did not understand what kind of king Jesus is. They were looking for an earthly king with an earthly kingdom. They were looking for freedom from Roman oppression. They were looking for a warrior king who would lead them in a literal war against all the nations who oppressed them. They were looking for a king who would give them national independence once more that they have not had in centuries. They were looking for a king who would begin a physical warring conquest of the world and bring all the nations under slavery to Israel. They were looking for a worldly king who would solve their worldly problems. But that's not the kind of king that Jesus is. It's not. And don't get me wrong, he will have dominion in this world in history. You guys know I'm optimistic about this, but it will not be through war. It will not. His kingdom is in this world, but it is not of it. It is not a political, worldly kingdom. It is a heavenly kingdom. Will it have earthly results? Absolutely. It's in the world. It's going to have results here, but it's not like the kingdoms of this world. Jesus came to save souls. He came to reconcile sinners to God and bring the redeemed into his kingdom. He came to set up an international kingdom with no borders. He came to speak peace to the nations and rule over them by ruling in their hearts through faith. King Jesus came not to be a warrior king like they expected. He is a warrior king. Read Psalm 110. He will crush the nations with his gospel, but not with a sword. He came to be a suffering, humble king who would die and rise for sinners to save them. Jesus came to bring in the covenant of grace, the new covenant that has better promises than any earthly nation that has a, a better, better promises than an earthly nation, an earthly people, and earthly blessings like the old covenant had. He, he came to give eternal life to sinners. He came to establish a kingdom made without hands. He came to establish an eternal covenant of peace with God. Please hear me. Jesus was not the king that they wanted, but he is the king that we need, that we all need. He is the king who came to do more and better than anyone could have ever imagined or expected. He came to save the world from sin and death and despair. He came to be what we need more than anything else. So I must ask you this morning, what kind of a king are you looking for? This, this, this pricked my heart and I hope it does the same to you. What kind of king are you looking for? Are you looking for a king who will merely make life better on this earth? A king who will make America great again? Are you looking for a rescuer from your financial problems? A savior from your loneliness? 
a savior from social ills, a king who will merely make politics sane, a king who will make your life easier in some way on this earth, or are you looking for the king that you need more than any of that? The king who will save you from your sins and give you peace with God for eternity. What kind of a king are you looking for? And let me be clear, knowing Christ will change things in your life. He will be the best friend that you've ever had, and you'll never be alone. Maybe you will, physically speaking, but you will always have Christ with you. And lo, I am with thee always, even unto the end of the age. He can and will change societies as more and more individuals come to know him. There is much joy in this life in knowing and following and serving him. But he did not come into this world to be an earthly king and solve merely earthly problems. Any other problems that get solved by him is an added bonus. But that's not primarily why he came. And yet so many treat him as such. And in doing so, they're, they're not really receiving Christ. Rather, they're after his gifts without him. Friend, he is the king that we all desperately need. We need salvation, and he has come to give it. He brings many other joys and blessings, yes, but primarily salvation from our sins and peace with God through him. And that's because that is our greatest need. And so in closing, I must ask, have you come to this king? This unique king, have you received him? The Messiah king, the savior king, the humble king, the divine king. Have you received this king with joy? Have you received him with submission and praise? Asking him to come and trample on your life as it were. Have you received him with faith? Crying out, save me. Hosanna, save me. Have you come to him for your greatest need? Your need for salvation and reconciliation with God. I pray that you will. I pray that we all will. Because he is the king and there is no other. There is no other hope. There is no other savior. There is no other king that we need so desperately. Jesus Christ is king. And may God help all of us to daily receive him as such. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we thank you for your word that teaches us, your word that reveals our Lord Jesus to us with greater clarity than we could have ever imagined. We thank you for this morning showing us the king and showing us our need for the king. I pray, God, if there are any here who have not been converted to Christ, that you would open their eyes and help them to see that Christ is the king that they need and help them to submit to him in faith. And God, for those of us who already believe, I pray that you would help us to not make the kingship of Christ a cheap thing as if Christ has come merely to make our country better and that's why we want people to know him. Forgive us for that. Forgive us for focusing on the extra blessings that Christ gives at the expense of forgetting that he came to bring spiritual salvation. 
Help us to remember that he is the king that we need more than anything. Help us all to praise him and worship him all of our days. We ask this in his name. Amen.